Welcome back, everybody. This is Seed Wars Part 11. And today I just want to say welcome back to all my brothers and sisters in Christ and those who do not know the Lord yet. I believe there's a mighty harvest that lies ahead. I think as the weeks and months and years continue on, we're moving along fairly quickly into a very unusual time and a very unusual world. And as the Bible prophecies come to fruition, more and more people are going to begin to wake up and understand the hour that we're in. So in this chapter, we're going to closely examine the concept of fruit and compare it to this idea of fruitfulness or being fruitful, which is the notion of having children. In fact, this word in the Bible, fruit, we see it right away in Genesis 1. The Elohim created man in his own image, male and female, and he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply. That's obviously a euphemistic expression to having children. And it's an interesting choice of words that God uses from the very onset of creation that he tells them to be fruitful. And that makes me think about Eve in the garden because we're told about her and Adam not eating the forbidden fruit. And so it raises the question that, are we talking about literal fruit or are we talking about something that would, make, would have made her become fruitful? And that is to have children. And I think that's a valid question because we know immediately after the fall in the garden, the very next verse, God pronounces the Proto-Evangelium about two seed lines or bloodlines or genealogies that come about as a result of what happened in the garden. So whatever happened in the garden, whatever you believe that was, it led to the, the birth of two bloodlines, one from the woman and one from the serpent. And we really need to develop some valid answers to why that is, and what was the mechanism that happened to lead to that. Now, everything revolves around seeds in the Bible. We're going to look at that going forward. Seeds are the mechanism that God uses for future generations. He uses it with animals, humans, and even plants. Everything has a seed, and the seed has the genetic blueprints, the DNA, and the genes within it to express the future generation. That's why we see the name of the beginning of the Bible is Genesis, Gene Assist. It's the beginning of the genetics of everything. God's creation, animals, plants, humans, and even the seed of the serpent, for, for example. So, the Elohim said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, there it is, which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree, which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. So we got to look at this word fruit. We see here that we've got trees, and these trees produce fruit. Well, we're going to look at the word fruit. We're going to look at the word seed. You'll find that both of them have two definitions, one literal and basically one spiritual, if you will. The first one is the word fruit, which is piri, 
I don't know if I'm saying it right, but that's the word, period. And it has two dual meanings. The first is literal fruit, apples, oranges, etc. The second meaning means offspring, children, or progeny of the womb. In fact, that's an expression that we hear a lot, fruit of the womb. Notice the word progeny. It has the word genie in it, progeny, to create genes. That word derives from genesis, genesis. Genesis is about the progeny of Adamites, the fruit of Adam's future womb. So here's an example of this word being used where it's not referring to literal fruit, but rather the fruit of the womb. Genesis 30, and Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in God's steed? Who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? Now, in this account, Rachel is barren and she's angry with Jacob. And Jacob's saying, Hey, am I in God's steed? God's the one responsible for giving you a child. And so, when he says here, fruit of the womb, he's talking about a future seed line. We see the same thing in Hosea. Ephraim is smitten. Their root is dried up, meaning that um, they're sterile. They shall bear no fruit. But yeah, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of the womb. There's the same expression. So, clearly the Lord wasn't talking about literal fruit here. We're not picturing a woman with an apple in her womb. We understand that this expression means having offspring. So as you can see, it's a great example of how this word fruit can be used to mean fruit of the womb. In other words, it translates to human sexual reproduction. Now we have to keep that in consideration when we look at the forbidden fruit. Could that have led to fruit of the womb? Eve's womb, that is. We'll see. Now we got to look at the next word, and that is Zara, seed, the, the, the trees that produce the fruit and yield the seed. Well, also it has two definitions. The first one is exactly what you think, a literal seed. You go outside and you sow a seed in the ground and it grows up to bear a tree. But that expression can be used in a different way too. Sowing a seed is another way of saying that a man impregnates a woman. In fact, the second definition of Zara means offspring, semen, posterity, and children. Now, the Strong's Concordance actually lists the word semen. So we're talking about the genetic seed, sperm, that a man uses to impregnate a woman. So you have to keep that in context as well. Now, just like para above, this word has dual meaning. It depends on the context with which it's being used. You have to discern that. It can mean a literal seed or it can mean a seed from a man. For example, Genesis 4. And Adam knew his wife and she bare a son and called him Seth. For God has appointed me another seed instead of Abel. You see that? We're talking about a seed in relation to a person, a child. And so when we see the 
the words fruit and seed and trees, we have to understand that sometimes the Bible is talking about literal fruit. Another time it's talking about impregnation and giving you fruit in your womb, which is a child. And of course, we have to keep all this in context of the garden account. So we basically see this circle of life all throughout God's creation. The fruit drops its seed on the ground so the next cycle can begin. Plants and animals and humans all do the same thing. They put their seed into the ground or into the womb or into the garden. And that way it'll produce the next generation. And so God uses the same regenerative and procreative process for all living things. And in today's vernacular, that seed is referred to as DNA. That's what we call it, genes. So now that we've established this understanding of fruitfulness, let's examine the Garden of Eden account. First of all, what is a garden? Well, according to the Strong's Concordance, there's a literal and a figurative meaning. The literal meaning is a literal enclosure for literal seeds that will turn into plants and procreate to make other plants. However, did you know that in the Bible a garden is used figuratively to describe a bride or a chaste woman? That's another way of saying a virgin. Isn't that interesting? Why would a garden be used figuratively for a virgin woman? Obviously, to plant a seed within her womb. In other words, a garden can be in a literal enclosure where plants and literal seeds flourish, or it can also be used figuratively as a woman's womb or uterus, which is also an enclosure where one plants a seed that grows to become offspring. Do you see that interesting parallelism there? Now, I think the best place to demonstrate this concept is in the book written by King Solomon called the Song of Solomon. And as you're going to see, there's a lot of interesting garden analogies within the book. In fact, as we see the garden in this book, it is in reference to a virgin woman and her garden represents the womb and Solomon's going to impregnate her. Now, this book was written by Solomon about a young, beautiful Shulamite woman that he fell in love with. And a lot of theologians believe that it's, it's a book about Yahweh and his love for his bride Israel. I personally don't see it that way. We see a lot of strong sexual content. He's referring to her breasts and how she tastes. And, you know, you're going to see in a minute just how sexually explicit it is. I don't think God would display that imagery uh, of that sexual nature. And so I don't personally um, believe those, uh, those other opinions. Now, of an interesting point is that we're going to see that this book is about getting a woman pregnant. Now, it is interesting that Solomon, he had 300 concubines. He was a womanizer. We know that. But we have a story about the Queen of Sheba, that the Queen of Sheba traveled many miles across the known world 
to see the splendors of Solomon. And in fact, not only are we told about that in the Bible, that, that she was very um, enamored with Solomon, but we see that Solomon was very enamored with her. And since we know Solomon was one heck of a womanizer, it's safe to assume that those two consummated their relationship. Now, keep in mind, she's a queen. And the only reason she was able to travel and leave like that and, and, and is because she didn't have a king. I don't recall what happened to him in history, but you know, queens don't just sleep around. They're looking for other royal bloodlines to connect with. So it's possible that the Queen of Sheba was a chaste virgin at that point. Either way, when she went home, history records that she became a follower of Yahweh and started practicing uh, that religious faith, the faith of this, the Semitic peoples, thanks to Solomon. And this is documented in their literature called the Kebra Nagast. And as you can see how it's, this is the book here. This is part of their King James Bible. Understand that the Ethiopians to this day are a Christian nation, and they have an ancient King James Bible. And within that Bible, it's exactly like our 66 book canon, but it has more books. One of them is the Ethiopian book of Enoch, interestingly enough. And so they've preserved these books for a long time. And in the Kebra Nagast, it talks about the royal bloodline of Solomon, that the queen of Sheba came home, impregnated with Solomon, and that they had a son, and that he would become the future king of Ethiopia. And in fact, he was the beginning of a lineage of kings for a long time in Ethiopia. And so that's something to keep in the back of your mind as we read the story. Now, can I confirm with 100% certainty that Solomon's writing about the Queen of Sheba? No, but she's mentioned a lot in the Bible. I mean, we have a lot of accounts of her and Solomon, both in Kings and Chronicles, and even Jesus talks about her during the resurrection. He says that the Queen of the South is going to rise, and, he's gonna, and she's going to also judge the Pharisees and the Sadducees during the resurrection of the dead, implying that she's one of the saved. So we have to take that into consideration. Either way you see it, the entire book has very strong sexual connotations. And the real point I want to make is that there are analogies and parables within this book that allude to this Shulamite woman as a garden, and that's where and it's her garden that gets filled with a seed. So in song one, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Notice that she's talking about his love and referring to wine. Wine comes from grapes. And we'll see that again in a moment. Look not upon me because I'm black, because the sun hath looked upon me. See, the queen of Sheba was an Ethiopian. She was a dark-skinned woman, so she would have been black. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. So some theologians have interpreted this verse to be figurative for the Shulamite. See, the vineyard represents her womanhood. And we'll see that as the story goes on. 
And by the way, a vineyard is actually used interchangeably for a garden. So when we see vineyard, we can also think garden. Verse 13, a bundle of, of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. For behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, you're pleasant, and also our bed is green. So as you can see, we're dealing with a couple of lovebirds here. They're writing these um, poetic love songs or expressions to each other. That's what we're reading. Now, when she says, yea, you're pleasant, that's what we read in the garden, that Eve saw that the tree was pleasant to the eyes one to make one wise. Now this concept of our bed is green, a green bed. We see other verses similar, green garden and green bed. She's not talking about a literal bed in the sense that her bed is literally the color green, but rather green represents birth, growing. You know, a garden that's green is a garden that's flourishing. She's suggesting that the bed is green, it's ripe, it's, it's ready to, to um, bear fruit. And one of the metaphors for a green bed is what they call a nuptial bed. And a nuptial bed has to do with conjugal rights, the husband and the wife on the marriage night. So really what she's saying here is the bed is ready and my womb is ready and I'm ripe for conception. Now, that's quite a terminology right there. The, there's an expression that the woman's womb was ripe for conception. What does that mean? It obviously means she's ovulating and she's ready to get pregnant. Now, notice the analogy again. The word ripe. We use that same word for fruit. When you thump on a watermelon, you say, hey, it's ripe, it's ready. Well, a womb being ripe is an expression for being ready for impregnation. Continuing on the fourth chapter, thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. And thy lips, O oh my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under my tongue. And the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. Now, the honey and milk under my tongue is a reference to his spouse's lips. That's what it says. Thy lips, O oh my spouse, are like honey and milk to my tongue. And the smell of his Shulamite woman and her garments, her clothes, he says is like the smell of Lebanon, which is Lebanon is where all the tall cedars and the forests are. It's a fresh, clean smell. Now, verse 12 is a really interesting one, and here we get to see the garden analogy in its prime. A garden encloses my sister, my spouse. She's a spring shut up or a fountain sealed. There's some interesting terminology there. First, understand that the word sister back then was used for many different applications. We're not talking about him sleeping with his literal sister. The word sister actually means a chaste bride, a virgin. See how it says, my sister, my spouse? So that's what that word means. Now, this is an example where the word garden is being used figuratively for a new bride, or as the Strong's Concordance states, 
a chaste virgin. Kind of like the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve had just come together, and Eve was Adam's chaste virgin bride. Now, it's interesting, Adam Clark's commentary, he says, these are the expressions to point out the fidelity of the bride, that she has been unsoiled, a chaste, pure virgin. None has ever entered her garden. Do you see that? None has yet tasted of her spring. She's a spring shut up. She's a virgin. None has tasted her spring. The seal of the fountain has not been broken. That's what a fountain sealed is. And so this is clearly a metaphor about Solomon and this young virgin woman. Verse 13, thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates. As we're going to learn in a moment, pomegranates back in the ancient days had to do with fertility and um, having children. Verse 15, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. That was exactly like the verse we looked at previously, where he's comparing her to a garden. Uh, he compares her to a spring, and now he's calling her a well of living waters. Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruit. Now, based on the direction that this whole chapter has been going, we know it's a metaphor about the Shulamites, so they're not saying he's going to walk into a literal garden and pick fruit. When she says, let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruit, that's a sexual undertone. That's figurative speech for coming into the garden. In other words, sexual intercourse. And again, Adam Clark's commentary, he says that this whole account is referring to her as a garden of pleasure, and then it's referring to nuptial or conjugal rites, which is something that took place back in that era between the husband and the wife on their wedding night or, or the night that they came together. So you can see that when you put these verses in context, there's some very interesting parallels between the Garden of Eden account. I mean, we have a, we're, we're looking at a situation here where she's saying, come into my garden and eat my fruit. And that means come in and have sex with me and impregnate me. So how do we know that when Adam and Eve are not to apply, eat of the forbidden fruit, that that can't have some kind of sexual knowledge as well? Um, I, I, you know, you have to ask yourself why the Lord allowed Solomon to include what seems to be a fairly unrelevant chapter in the Bible about his sexual um, life with this woman. So I believe it's it's in there on purpose for these very reasons, so that we have greater understanding of the garden account. That's why I believe God inspired Solomon to put this book within the scripture. Verse seven, or, uh, chapter seven, um, this thy stature is like to a palm tree 
and thy breasts to the clusters of grapes. So now he's using another analogy. He's saying that her stature, her figure, if you will, reminds him of a palm tree. Now, palm trees back then were very desirable. The date trees, they produced all the dates that you ate. They called them grapes. And uh, so he's comparing her to a palm tree, and her breasts are like the grapes of the palm tree. And earlier he compared her to wine, that she was as fine as wine. I said, I will go up to the palm tree, and I'll take hold of the boughs thereof. Now also thy breasts shall be as clusters of the vine and the smell of thy nose like apples. So here, when he says he's going up to the palm tree to take a hold of it, he's referring to grabbing a hold of her body. Um, and also thy breast shall be as clusters of the vine. That's the grapes, referring to her breasts. And he's describing the smell of her skin, that it's like putting a fresh apple to his nose. And the roof of my mouth, like the best wine for my beloved, it goes down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. So he's not talking about drinking wine literally, but the taste of the Shulamite kissing her and her taste from her mouth is like a fine wine. That's what he's saying. And I am my beloved's and his desire is towards me. Similar word used in the garden, that Eve desired the tree because it was pleasant to the eyes. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the village. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourishes where the tender grape appears and the pomegranates bud forth. Now we're seeing some interesting expression. We already see that he's been comparing her to a garden and a vineyard the entire account. He referred to her as grapes and the wine off the vine. So for the wine, the vine to flourish where the tender grape appears, that's about procreating and making new grapes. Same thing with the pomegranate budding forth. A new bud is a baby. When the pomegranate buds, it's going to bear forth the next generation. So this is all euphemistic expression of, is she ripe? For conception. So this whole this whole metaphor is about this bed of love, and then the next verse: the mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of present fruit, which I've laid up for thee, O my beloved. Now this has a really deep context because, as we're going to learn in the Old Testament, the mandrake is called the love apple. And people consume the love apple for multiple reasons. Number one, it was an aphrodisiac and known to put people in the mood for sexual intercourse. Number two, it was also known to have medicinal purposes that opened up the womb for conception. And so the fact that we're seeing the mandrake being uh, brought up in this account is just one more confirmation that there is um, procreation taking place. So if you do some research on these palm dates and these pomegranates, turns out that they've always been a symbolism of fertility and fruitfulness throughout all of the ancient Israel, China, India. Um, they've always had to do with progeny and fertility and getting pregnant. And 
We see the, the vine being used a lot figuratively throughout the Bible to refer to a wife. In the previous chapter, he's referring to her as a vine and that he wants to see the vine flourish. The reason we know he's talking about impregnating her with his future seed is because we see examples of the vine being used as a seed line. Psalm 128, the wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the side of the house and my children like olive plants around the table. Here's an example of the wife who is a fruitful vine. What does that mean? It means she's fruitful. She's going to bear a lot of fruit and he's going to have a lot of children. Jeremiah 2, yet I had planted a noble vine, a holy, a right seed. How then are thou turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine to me? This is a really interesting verse because we're seeing the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent play out right here in Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2, this is God prophesying through Jeremiah saying, hey, I went into the garden and planted a noble vine, a right seed. That's the seed of the woman that Adam and Eve had all the way through Seth and on through David and Christ. But how did you turn into a degenerate plant of a strange vine? Well, we know that according to Matthew 13, Jesus says an enemy snuck in since the beginning of creation and he sowed a seed and it led to the tares, the weeds that would grow up amongst the wheat. So the seed of the serpent began to blend with the seed of the woman in the Old Testament and they contaminated the vine. And now it's become a degenerate plant and a strange vine. That word strange means it's no longer the same uh, vine that it was. It's different. It's been, it's been marred. So this is, this is in, very much in context of the Proto-Evangelium. And then lastly, again, we want to now take a moment and look at verse 13 about the mandrakes, the love apples. This is, this is going to be very important proceeding forward. So let me set the stage here. We have Jacob, who later becomes, his name is changed to Israel. He's the one who has the future 12 tribes of Israel, which we're about to read that account here. He gets tricked into having two wives, not on purpose. It wasn't a, he didn't desire the polygamy, but he gets tricked into two wives. And so he honors that. Well, the wives can't produce kids. And they're sisters. These two wives are sisters. And they're competing for Jacob's love and affection. And so since they can't have kids, they happen to have some handmade servants who later we'll find are also of the Semitic bloodline. So we're going to see that this is all the seed of the woman procreating with each other to make the 12, 12 tribes. There's not any of the seed of the serpent entered into this story. So in other words, as the Jewish people like to say, they're keeping it kosher here. It's all, it's all in the family. And um, what ends up happening is, is eventually uh, Leah's son, Reuben, goes out and gets some mandrakes because he knows that mandrakes are called the love apple. The other name for him is a May apple. And he gives them to his mom because he wants his mom to get pregnant. He's tired of watching her suffer. Well, Rachel comes along and says, hey, I want your son's mandrakes. And Leah says, well, it's not enough that you already have the affection from our, our same husband. Jacob loves you more than me. Now you want my son's mandrakes too? And so they end up making a deal. I'll let you sleep with Jacob tonight, Leah, 
but you got to give me your son's mandrakes. Well, Leah says, fine, you can have the mandrakes and I'll go sleep with Jacob. We could assume since she was barren and has been sleeping with Jacob for a long time and not producing sons, that before she hands off the pile of mandrakes, she probably consumes some herself because she's desperate for a child. And then immediately it says God opened her womb and she conceived. Now, we can believe that God just supernaturally went pow and opened her womb, or we can believe that God works, sometimes he works through his creation to do it. That the mandrakes are known for not only making you horny, but also for making you open your womb. There's something in them that opens your womb, makes the eggs ovulate. And, you know, a lot of times God enters his creation supernaturally, like with Moses spreading the, the Red Sea. But a lot of times he works through his creation. In this account, I believe that's what he's doing. He's working through the mandrakes to open her womb. We see this in Sodom and Gomorrah. God wasn't like Zeus and he threw a lightning bolt down and destroyed the cities. He most likely allowed a meteor or a comet to strike the cities. Now, he organized that supernaturally because he's in control of the universe. And we've already seen archaeologically that those areas are burned out with sulfur and bits and debris of meteorites. So that's likely what happened. So I'm subscribing to the fact that God worked through the mandrakes and allowed them to open her womb. And what we see here is this fascinating concept of the mandrake. And I always find it interesting how God includes these, what seem to be insignificant details in the scripture. We touched on that the other day. We, Paul just happens to tell us during his travels that he has to get on a boat. And he just happens to include in the text that it has the sign of Castor and Pollux. Now, when you're reading that, you think, oh, big deal. And you just keep on zipping by. But as we've already demonstrated in previous lectures, that one time that he alludes to that concept, we see that it has a deeper meaning because we find out later that those are the twin boys from a different father. And, and we've already connected that to Cain and Abel, if you haven't seen the last couple lectures. And so these little details, they're not always just frivolous details. You've got to kind of dig deep, so to speak, to find the answer. And so here's the question. Is it possible that Eve ate a love apple? Now, we've always kind of been told, mythologically speaking, that Adam ate or Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and many will say it was an apple. And so if that's true, then technically speaking, this qualifies because this is called the love apple. And interestingly enough, not only does it, um, not only is it an aphrodisiac, meaning it makes you want sexual activity, but it's also notorious for opening the womb to allow you to have a, become impregnated. And even more importantly, we're going to see that it has belladonna and opium and other things in it that really um, um, mesmerize you and help put you into a trance state so that you can fall into, a me be mesmerized. That if someone were going to put a spell on you, usually what they do is they use some kind of potion on you. Now, we're going to find out that all throughout antiquity, that's what the mandrake's been used for all throughout witchcraft. Grind the root up and put it in a potion and put someone under a spell so that you can control them. Now, considering the fact that the Nakash, the serpent, the verb form says that he was a diviner, an enchanter, 
one who gives you a, a or, or a charmer. A charmer or an enchanter is someone who gives you a charm or chant, and they put you in an enchantment. They put a spell over you, and they use witchcraft and sorcery to do it. And if you look up the words witchcraft and sorcery, they mean to take herbs and roots and make a spell, a potion. And so we know Satan was the diviner. He was the enchanter. Later, a few chapters later in Genesis 6, we learn about the other fallen angels and women. And in fact, the book of Enoch says that they, these angels taught them all of the different herbs and roots to make spells. So, is it possible that there is a literal garden? I believe that. There's a literal Adam and Eve. And I wouldn't doubt if there's a literal tree. And perhaps that tree just happens to be having some love apples hanging. And when the reptilian, Luciferian uh, entity entered into the garden, he put a spell on Eve, got her to eat the love apple. It's full of all these aphrodisiacs. It opens the womb. And he knew that it would prepare her and make her ripe for impregnation. Now, obviously, that's a pretty wild story. And we're going to take a look at that on the next lecture. There's actually a lot of fascinating details about the mandrake that I think you need to be aware of. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to actually read this story. I just summarized it. If you want to pause it and read it, then go ahead. But you'll see right here in the center that has to do with getting the mandrakes and then immediately Leah conceives and has a baby. And so um, we will continue to look at that. Those mandrakes have a very interesting um, application uh, going forward. So when you take the grand sum total of all these clues, you know, we just read the Song of Solomon. We learned about the fruit and the seed, and we read all of the parables about the garden, which can be an enclosure like a womb. It becomes obvious that this chapter speaks of a couple who are in love. They're planning to consummate their relationship. They want to have a family. They're, they want to have a child. And when, when one applies these concepts to the Genesis account, we can't help but notice a lot of strange connections, innuendos, and um, similar scenarios to that event. Now, you may ask, well, why would God hide the true meaning of the garden? Well, is it any really any different than what we do with our children? I mean, we use all these shameless analogies with them. Let me tell you about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. Or we say things like, the stork dropped off the baby. So the reality is that sex has been taboo from the beginning. But I think the real reason it's been taboo is because of what happened in the garden. And I think the reason why God has concealed this truth is because it's kind of shameful to consider this seductive event by the angel. It leaves a black mark on humanity, one that God has purposefully chosen to conceal in a mystery. And so I believe God may have used this parable of the forbidden fruit 
to shroud this mystery of the concept of Eve getting pregnant by the Nakash. And when Eve ate the forbidden fruit, she truly became fruitful. And she became pregnant with two different seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So I'm going to close this chapter out with this one final thought. We brought this up before. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Have you ever wondered where that expression comes from? That's an old axiom that people have been using for a long time. It means like father, like son. These expressions have a genetic undertone. I mean, let's examine what really happens when an apple falls far from the tree. First of all, the apple usually doesn't fall far from the tree. It hits the ground nearby and then it releases its seed and it's in the same soil, the same circumstances. And so it produces almost an identical tree. And then the next one does the next thing and the next apple, the next thing. It's a perpetual never ending story. If the apple were to fall far away from the tree, which is that's not what the expression says, but if it did, then it would be in different soil, different weather, different circumstances, and maybe it wouldn't be identical. And so when we say the apple doesn't fall from the, far from the tree, we're obviously referring to genetics. And when someone says that to you, you know that what they're really saying is that you're just like your parents. Now, I think a great example of this expression could possibly be found in Cain. Now here, we can truly say the apple didn't fall far from the tree. He followed his father's footsteps in almost every regard, as did his progeny, including Tubal Cain. It seems that it was their genetic predisposition to be evil. However, we see God still gives Cain a chance. The doctrine of free will was still at work for a moment there. Cain could have still provided a true sacrifice, but instead he chose to murder his half-brother out of anger and jealousy something that we see in his father. So I believe it may have been in Cain's DNA that he, uh, as the old timers say, it was in the blood. And so maybe that's why Jesus says in John 8, when he speaks to the Pharisees, who we will conclusively reveal, come back to Cain, you are, the you are of your father the devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. See that word lusts? He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. Well, who was the murderer from beginning? The first recorded murderer in history is Cain. And so they are like their father, the devil. Anyway, that's it for today. Uh, on the next lecture, we're going to take a very interesting look at this love apple, the mandrake. And on that note, Godspeed, and we'll see you on the next one.